This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. Wow, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hi, this is Miss Guy, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast with Pleasant Gaiman. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, the Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaming as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman of the Devil's Music Podcast. I'm a rock and roll witch, a lifelong punk rock maniac. I'm a multi-genre artist, a best-selling author, a writer, a performer. Some of you may already know me. Some of you may not know me. Others of you might even know me in the biblical sense. There could be a chance of that. Anyway, I've always been interested in the outre, the crazy, the out-of-the-box, the wildest things imaginable from any century and any decade. I was lucky enough to have been a member or one of the proponents of the Los Angeles punk rock scene in the early 70s. I had a fanzine called Lobotomy. In the 80s, I had several bands and booked a lot of very significant clubs in Los Angeles, punk rock legendary clubs like Raji's and Cathay de Grant. I've been putting on shows since 1978, and it's continued right on up here 40 decades later. I still do that. I'm a belly dancer. I'm a burlesque dancer. I'm a tarot reader. And if you listen to my podcast, you're going to see that I'm an absolute lunatic Love y'all, and love doing this. I hope you're enjoying it. So, just a little bit of info. You can find The Devil's Music and all the Pantheon shows on Spotify, Radio.com, and Pandora. Actually, if if you're into it, you can just go all OCD and look really hard. You'll find us on at least 40 different podcast networks. We're growing and growing. Everyone at Pantheon loves telling stories about the greatest moments of rock and roll in a variety of manners. You'll see what mine is like when you listen to it. There's something for everyone. So many shows, so many flavors, so little time to listen to all of them. Find it everything at PantheonPodcast.com.
Hey, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to my podcast, The Devil's Music. Today, my guest is a really longtime friend of mine, as so many are. It's author, music supervisor, club promoter, Howard Parr. His novel, Top Ranking, just came out in May. And we've known each other for like like four decades or so. Um, he's as a music promoter and a, um, a club booker and a supervisor. He's worked with everybody you could possibly imagine from The Clash, The Specials, The Go-Go's, The English Beat, In Excess, The Psychedelic Furs, Lydia Lunch, Bunny Whaler, in excess, Eric Burden, etc., etc. This would take the whole episode if I talked about who he worked with. Um, he was also um, the top-ranking dude of the On Club, a ska and reggae, and um, I don't even remember what other kind of genres. All kinds of rock and roll club in LA in the '80s, which was one of the best places to hang out at. And boy, does he have stories to tell! Hi, Howard. How are you doing? I'm great, Pleasant. It's so fun to see you and have at it with, uh, with today. It's going to be a blast. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Because anytime we talk about like the 70s or the 80s, anyone that's not as um, cough, cough senior as we are, uh, <laughs> can't believe the kind of shenanigans we got up to. So um, your, your novel top ranking has a lot to do with your real life. And I figured um, you grew up in London, right? And then you came to LA. What, what, what year? 77. Oh, perfect timing. But like, what a crazy ass time to leave London also. <laughs> it, I, I'll tell you exactly true. And the funny thing is I was, you know, I don't really look back a lot, right? But the book, obviously writing it and now talking about it's brought it all back. But I remember like, I was in London and back then Freddie Laker Airways was right. That was the first time any kids who didn't who weren't, you know, rich or whatever could get to LA because it was a cheap airline that flew to LA for like 200 pounds. And you, but you had to buy the tickets way in advance. So I bought the ticket in 76. <laughs> Not knowing punk was going to break out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm having like the best time and it was like right at the very height of it. And it was time to come here. And I remember back then, because it was t literally 200 pounds. I remember this, those moments in your life, right? It was like, there was this one suit that was so fucking cool at this uh, clothes shop, Malcolm Horn. It was like, also like 200 pounds. And I was like, hmm, what do you, you know what I mean? That was all there was, you know what I mean? It was like- Plane ticket, looking dapper. Plane <laughs> ticket, looking dapper. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then I got here and obviously, it was, yeah, it was like that shock horror immediately because it was like, you got here and it was until I started immersing in the world that you you knew and we both know now, that the instant hit was like, you get off and it's like some fucking horrible time machine. You got Fleetwood back, Eagles, Led Zeppelin, you know, <laughs> city band names, Kansas, Boston, you know, throwing like foreigner. And I was like, what? It was like a horror show. <laughs> You were like, what the fuck? Yeah. You were like, sod off, you fucking wanker. I was having a great time, don't get me wrong. I mean, it was incredible fun to be here, and I was having a blast with that aspect of it. But then, you know, look, right away, Tom Petty was... The first show I saw here was Tom Petty at the Whiskey with... The I knew you were going to say that. I was there, too. Yeah, I, that was, like, literally the first show I ever saw in America. So immediately you know, the whiskey in those places. Of course, like, cause that, but plus... I probably the, took your tickets that night. Yeah, <laughs> could be. The ticket taker at the age of 16 at oh, the whiskey. Brilliant. Oh, that's so funny. I, yeah, God, I remember, I like, I remember a lot of this stuff so vividly. Um, yeah, but that was a great show. The Quick was so good, too. Yeah, the quick were amazing. I always I always talk about the quick to people and um only people from the olden days know who, who they were from. Um for you guys out in podcast land, the quick were an amazing band, um, produced by Kim Fowley, signed to I think it was Polygram. It might have been Electra. Duh, I don't remember some of those I think, yeah. um labels. But they were such a great pop punk band and um 
some of them went on to do the theme song from Friends. So even though you wouldn't know them as the quick, a lot of their music sounded like that, but it had also, it was kind of like the dark twisted S&M fetish side of Sparks is what the quick sounded like. That's a, oh, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to remember that because I do love to bring them up. And like, I'll tell you what, just as an aside, Danny Benea, are you, do you know each other still? Or of course, we, we've known each other longer than I've known you. <laughs> right, well, he would be, wouldn't he, you've got to get him on here because he's such a sort of, I mean, great, incredible sort of architect. Fountain of information, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His mom used to come to quick shows, Muriel Bonaire, like in her little, like, like suits, <laughs> like Chanel kind of suits and stuff at the Starwood and the Whiskey. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I had no idea about that. Yeah, I met Danny later when, because the three o'clock as was um, Salvation Army played. The yeah, and then their guitarist, Steve Hofstetter, was like in the Cruzados with Tito LaRiva and I played with a bunch of other bands. He was such an amazing guitarist. But let's go back to you. Sorry, yeah. Um, so when... um. I want to find out, aside from like the Eagles and all that kind of garbage, when did you, <laughs> gar garbage being the operative word here. So true, so true. Let's not leave the bound um, push. I'm not revising my opinion since. <laughs> yeah. When, um, when did you first like conceive of and start the On Club? I'm just curious about that because I, re I remember it just, I remember kind of when it opened, but I don't remember like what year and then, Everyone, in those days, I gotta say for the listeners, everyone would just got, there was no things like, this is only rock and roll or heavy metal or punk rock or reggae or ska or everything. Everyone went to every club because there was only a handful of them that played what would, what would later be called alternative bands, meaning local bands that were fucking amazing, you know, and touring bands that weren't signed yet, but were, you know, doing, their own what would later be called indie stuff you know so we didn't have the delineations then and the on club you know obviously had a lot of your influence as far as like you know jamaican music or stuff that was going on in london um or or brixton or you know whatever mm -hmm. you know the islands that kind of stuff but also you guys had all sorts of every kind of band imaginable pretty much i mean except for like hardcore which in those days wasn't even the hardcore that later people became to know yeah i think that we've got to touch on that because i keep bringing that up as part of the catalyst in a way and uh but any because and yet people think about it differently than we probably did in that moment or even attribute it differently um what happened for me was you know i mean it was really pretty simple but sounds funny when you look back on it but i i saw a picture in the NME of the specials had a, their first single gangsters coming out. And at that point, which is, this was 79. And I would sort of, I think my punk clothes wise was getting a bit identical, you know what I mean? And yeah. in some cases the bands were. Um, so I was sort of, I started wearing some of those clothes like before I saw the picture and I'm like, and I knew what their reference points were. And it was just funny. I didn't have a hat like that but other than that i was wearing a lot of those clothes you know little quarter inch braces and boots and levi stay press stuff like that and i i kind of could see it i just was like oh i gotta get this so i got the single um which was the flip side of it was selector um my god i love the selector so much well exactly right and that obviously the two-tone label and started reading what they and this was really the beginning and right in that minute i was like oh this is it, you know, and that really, that was the catalyst. You know, the more I heard of the two-tone stuff, um, so the, the sort of genesis of it became, that was the core, you know, the two-tone sound. I think the, that I always equated, as an American, I always uh, um, equated the two-tone label with, um, you know, Steph Records. Because they seemed like they were both like, I mean, they were working in different genres, but both pushing the boundaries and you know, getting yeah. a lot of stuff out that needed to be listened to and was absolutely amazing. Like kind of almost, almost concurrently, like Stiff a little tiny bit before, but yeah. Yeah, a lot, obviously. And, and Stiff was, 
yeah, Stiff was my favorite label coming into that point, you know, of the independent labels. Because, yeah, and they were, you know, the thing with Stiff was it was, as you say, a lot really diverse in the sense of, you know, you had Lena Lovich, Elvis Costello, Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, all those kind of people. Rachel who, Sweet, wasn't Rachel Sweet on Stiff at first? Rachel Sweet, I mean, the, and Ian Dury. No, was Ian Dury? Yeah, I think he Yeah, 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 I think he was, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, so all those bands, you get none of them. I mean, I remember seeing the Dave Edmonds, Elvis Costello, and Nick Lowe at Hollywood High. I don't know if you saw that yeah, show. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> we've been in so many of the same places before we even knew each other, right? Well, maybe by then we knew each other, um, but maybe not. But anyway, so there's all that stuff going. That, they were great label. Two Tone was a bit like the club started in a way because Two Tone was very specific you know, to that punk scar stuff, which is kind of, a lot of people call it mod scar, and I, which I don't, you know, I have a big issue with, but it was really, to me, it was punk scar. Well, you know, that was how it was referred to in the early days. Um, and the, the beginning of the On Club, that's all the idea was. It was to just do that with soul music um, because a lot, a lot of the 60s Southern soul music felt, like to me, like it would work with it. And you had those other artists who were surfacing around who ended up playing the club, like Gino Washington was over here at that, even though he was American, he obviously was more known in England. Um, so it was Scar and Soul. That was the sort of core of the, the beginning of it. Yeah, you know, like here, I don't know, if you probably didn't know this at the time, but you probably know this now. A lot of the, the punks at, during that time in LA, we'd listen to um, radio stations like, XPRS or, um, you know, which was broadcast from Mexico. That was like what the, the song Border Radio was about. And they would always be playing like all sorts of oldies like doo-wop and soul because that was just so much better than the garbage that was on the radio, you know, yeah. and then all the all the other oldie, oldie DJs on different stations like Huggy Boy and stuff. Yeah. They all, all played that. So so many people from punk rock, we weren't rebelling against that music because we actually listened to it. It was just the shit that was on the radio. And I, you know, I'm with days. you. Yeah, and look, you would have known it more because you were here and I knew it. Um, I, I started to get a sense of that, you know, and I knew the AM stuff, but I didn't know the border radio station. You know, I didn't know about that, which sucks because I would have, you know, it was so what I would have You would have been all over it. Also because in between, like, There'd be like two or three songs and then there'd be like 20 minutes of dedications like um, from Shy Girl to Lil Puppet. I'm sorry you're locked up, baby, but I will love you forever. I mean, but this would all be getting read, you know, like all like people would like stand in, in paper mail, like their dedications to like their gang boyfriends who, who were in like Lompoc or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing too was, where the on club was that sort of that community yeah was it that's that was like that was like technically like east hollywood but it might as well have been east los which was you know and there was so many east la people involved in in the la punk scene that that was like the the stuff that they grew up on too you know they didn't just discover it as like a, a teenager listening to the radio that was what their parents were playing yeah, I mean, I grew, look, I grew up with it too, and the Stax stuff, um, especially, yeah. I love. Stax and Vault and all of, all of that great stuff. Yeah, and the weird thing, and again, this was intuitive at the time, and I certainly didn't know it for a fact, but what I hadn't realized was that that Southern soul, which is what I think of most of it, you know, the, obviously Memphis, but New Orleans, just an ungodly amount of music. I'm still... Listen, oh my God, I, the Neville brothers. I mean, just any, any part of it. And going backwards, I mean, there's a, there's a WWAZ station I'm addicted to. And you know, it's so funny because when you're at a certain point, you think, well, I've heard every great soul song. And I'm like, you have never heard every great soul song. There was so much regional stuff. But the point was ge geographically, the scar in its earlier, you know, original form out of Jamaica they were hearing that stuff in New Orleans and backwards and forwards. And I think yeah. was, that a lot of that early music was more influenced by uh, American soul than I was as a child, as I realized, you know what I mean? I had no idea. I just loved it all and didn't think about yeah, it. Yeah, but like a, a New Orleans was, you know, it was like that, that 
Caribbean pipeline, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Like yeah. just the same as it had been, you know, in slave trading times, which is a horrifying comparison. But I mean, there was, that's, that's Creole, you know what I mean? That's Creole culture and people still had, you know, like the relatives living in the islands. Um, so I, did you ever, I'm just going to tell you this. This is one of the six stories okay. that I have to tell you about reggae and, and, um, you know, like all, all the white label reggae's, there was a, there was a record store in Watts that Jeffrey Lee Pierce and I used to go to all the time to get, you could get white label reggae records, which were um, just for the listeners. Those were like, they were indie records, but a lot of them were also quote, quote, adult records. Like they were just like filthy, filthy, crazy, um, like X-rated songs by people that were super famous. Like you, you could listen to them and be like, whoa, that's Bob Marley singing, or oh, that's definitely Bunny Whaler or Jimmy Cliff. So there was there was this this one that I just bought it. Like I used to buy records, like 45s at the Capitol Records swap meet and at this store, just like not knowing who people were, but if it had like sort of a title that seemed like it was a little bit psychotic, I'd be like, oh yeah, I got to buy that. It's only like a dollar or whatever. So I bought this one and I can't remember exactly, um, I can't remember exactly what the title was on the blank label that attracted me to it. And also I used to hate, I hated reggae until like, you know, one night I was smoking pot and then then all of a sudden I understood it. So I brought this record home and threw it on the turntable at my punk house Disgraceland. And it was a filthy, filthy, amazing record. And I'm going to sing you some of it. You might know who did it. Okay, okay. I love it. <laughs> okay. Um, but, um, okay, so these are the lyrics that are still burned into my memory like 40 years later. It was, uh, okay, this is like one of the verses. North, South, West, and East. I played the beauty and my boyfriend played the beast. Me a homosexual. Me a homosexual. North, east, west, and south. I take it in the ass and I take it in the mouth. Me a homosexual. Me like a sucky pooter. Anyway, so like that, that was such a hit at my place that it was on nonstop. We used to just put a 45 on and leave the arm over so that it, you know, so that it would just repeat because we went OCD on songs. So one night during that craze, like about two weeks after I had gotten the record, Joe Wood from TSOL came up to me at the bar at the music machine, this great club. And he comes up to the bar and he's like, fuck you, Pleasant. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, Five minutes ago in the dressing room, I was just going north, east, west, down, south. I take it in the ass and I take it in my mouth. <laughs> did, they, did they do a cover? No, but they should have. <laughs> that would have been that would have been perfect. <laughs> I, you know, I, the the funny thing is that music, like obviously, there was a certain point where people equated it to sort of you know, political or, you know, uh, you know, cultural in a different way. But it began like that. The first, like, Max Romeo's Wet Dream was out in England, right? And it was absolutely banned, you know. Yeah. BBC banned it, right, which was instant guarantee it was going to hit. And it, when it went, they were dreading it going to number one because every week... Dreading it going to top pops right that just wasn't gonna happen so everyone's buying it to get it there um but yeah there was a lot of those i mean look not quite not as explicit as that but pretty much going on even commercially you know yeah yeah the stuff was wild then we're gonna take a little musical break here maybe if you're lucky we're gonna listen to some x-rated white label shit
Okay, I'm back with my esteemed guest, Howard Parr. And um, let's talk about, so let's talk about like some of like, you know, some some good on-club stories that you've got from when you had the on-club. Well, you know, I mean, boy. I'm, every night was a story, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, look, it's always an adventure having a club and certainly that police theater, you know, the rampart, being the rampart police division, which, which none of us really knew was notorious at that point. Although, yeah, we didn't know that it was like the most, I mean, I, 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 I did, but you know what I mean? I did, I, I did, I found out obviously how they were, but it wasn't like common knowledge to anyone except when you experienced it. So, yeah. I mean, that was an underlying presence there um, throughout, you know, and all the other attendance stuff with the fire department coming down and look, you know, look, we caught it in, look, the, the thing to me was that I, you know, I came from, I grew up where, you know, I could go see bands at 13, 14. There was no age limit. You didn't have to have, ID, there was no ID in England. And if you look sort of old enough, you could get in and see whatever you wanted to. So when with the club started and there was like this 21 and over age limit, I was like, that's never going to fly. So consequently, there were always people in there teenagers in there you know of and <laughs> including including um some of the artists weren't old enough either you know what I mean? oh yeah like, i mean in those days i mean that's where the energy was but it also led to a lot of the issues but i mean overall i don't know like i mean there's the writing the book brought a lot of stuff back you know and it's written very in the moment in, in a way where I wanted people, whether they, if they were there, I hope they'll find it authentic. And if you weren't there, there's no reflection, you know, it's just written as was. And it's a tricky one because it is a fictional story, but there's so much real stuff in there. And I, I sort of decided not to dissect it with people too much because I feel like it spoils the fun, you know, you can see what, think what you think. And I know people are, some people have got completely crazy impressions um, in their own head and their little theories about it, which is great for me. I'm just, I love oh yeah, that they think it's like, they think it's someone, but it actually wasn't based on So I mean, it was based yeah, on- exactly, exactly. I, yeah, I had one of my book covers had um, a, a painting on it that an artist made, um, Escape from Houdini Mountain, which is um, still available, even though it came out a million years ago. Um, but it was talking about this wild night on acid I had um, with someone I called Mr. Monster um, in the book because they, you know, they were still alive then. And um, <laughs> anyway, um, it, it, it was Lux Interior, but um, from the, from the painting on the cover, everyone's like, I know who Mr. Monster is. It's Joey Ramone, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, and I, you know, I think it's great when, if people care enough to get excited and wonder who things are, you know, for the most part, I, I love it. And obviously I use real people in it. Um, and, you know, I, a couple of them that have got slightly longer parts in it, I told I was doing it and hoped and they were yeah. okay. Yeah, you just got to gotta do that, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, you know, most of the sort of, uh, you know, I tend to fictionalize any evildoers because, you know, they are normally based on one individual anyway um, more just like an experience of that era because there were so many diverse people and the record business was so still mob connected in ways that are fun yeah. to talk about and you know it was just that it was just a fun era there was so many kind of disparate people coming together you know inside and you know on the look we were all on the peripheral of the music business right I mean we were we were coming through trying to figure out where we all were and you know, largely separate from that. You know, I, I didn't like the people who came down from record companies and stuff with their A&R people. I'd be like, you're fucking paying. You know what I mean? They'd yeah, be like, yeah, totally. and you know what I mean? And uh, it was, it was just funny. And, and people remind me of stories. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't, in the moment, there's so much stuff going on the whole time. And I, I just, you know, I get reminded of how I was then, you know, by people. I was like, really? I said that? I did that? You know, I did. I know, we were bad. We were, we were bad. Like, I think of some of the shit that I did in those days, and I was like, wow, that was that was when my moral compass was in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, and I, you know, look, it, 
I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we did it better doing it then than now, right? You know. Oh fuck yeah! But um, <laughs> I, my band, the Screaming Sirens, had our very first gig at the On Club, and um, we opened for Los Lobos, and which was amazing, and they were friends of ours. Um, but uh, so. There's a story. Also, how the sirens came to be kind of was at the at the um, on club too. Like you know, I don't think you know this, but um, so my drummer Boom Boom Dixon was uh, playing with a band called Keith um, Keith Joe Dick, uh, or you know, he was he was a rockabilly singer called Keith Joe Dick. I forgot exactly what his band was called, but when I started wanting to um, start a band, I, I realized that it was going to be impossible to find a uh you know a good um a, a a great girl drummer and a girl guitar player and so i was weighing the options and i figured a drummer i had to find that first so i kept putting ads in the recycler which for the listeners was the hard copy newspaper version um comparable to to craigslist now you know what i mean but it wasn't as it wasn't as um shifty as craigslist like there was there was huge musician ads so i you know i sort of made a spot description of what my idea of the band was looking for a drummer and the ad ran for weeks i did not have a, a drummer at all and jenny shore from straight jacket and also from last the last episode we did from backstage pass was um our first guitar player and Fred Dixon, who went on to be the Cramps, was our first bass player. But we didn't have a drummer. So um, I hated Boom Boom with a passion. She was an incredible drummer, but I couldn't fucking stand her because I'd always see her at your club <laughs> getting escorted with like bouncers holding both arms and both legs. And she'd be struggling and kicking and screaming and spitting at people and like breaking bottles and stuff. And every time I saw her, I, <laughs> I honestly don't remember that. Yeah, that's but that's probably because shit like that happened a lot in those days. No, I mean the funny thing is, I mean for the most part, we didn't really have bouncers. I mean, truthfully. Well, may, well, maybe it was maybe it was like uh, either roadies or I, I mean something. I don't know, but just she was I'm always creating. I'm not disputing it because there was a lot of mayhem would go on. You know, I mean sometimes if I was DJing and stuff, I couldn't even see. I mean, I could see on the dance floor, but I wasn't seeing the parade. Right. Well, I, I saw that happen to her a few times, not even connecting it to the fact that that was happening to me regularly at clubs too. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I got 86 from the club. I was booking Kathy DeGrand because I was breaking bottles. And I was like, you can't 86 me. I work here. And he goes, you're 86 for the next month after seven o'clock. You can come in and do your job. And put oh, this that's genius. What a hypocrite, right? <laughs> but so anyhow, um, I, I couldn't stand women. I hated her with a passion. And so one day, desperate for a drummer, I, I got her number from somewhere. And this was, of course, on landlines. And I was I was like, hi, is this Boom Boom? And she was like, yeah, who is this? And I said, hey, it's pleasant. And there was like a huge, long silence. <laughs> and then I said, um, oh, well, what are you doing? And she said, <laughs> folding laundry, like she wanted to kill me. And then there was another really long silence. And I said, oh, well, do you want to start a band with me? <laughs> <laughs> and so then, so then after a really long time, um, she said, what are you talking about? And I said, let's meet tomorrow. Anyhow, we met and like we were so exactly on the same page. And then like two years later, like after we had a record out and we were in the middle of a tour somewhere. And I was like, what the fuck made you even agree to meet with me and she said you know when you called me up it was the sickest thing i had ever heard and i thought i need to look into this <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how bands should form right yeah. I mean, that, that actually feels like perfect to me there's <laughs> one story i'll tell you because it, it is in the book but it is real and uh so and it sort of ties in the sort of police part of this, right? So one night we used to just for a long time, it was just Friday and Saturday nights. And that would always stick to the ska reggae uh, soul thing in some way or another, uh, except when Lydia lunch played, which is actually another good. Okay. I've got, we'll do the Lydia lunch. Oh play. yeah, definitely. We have to do that. Yeah. So, this English band from Liverpool, the room, I think they were supposed to play the whiskey initially or somehow it happened that they, 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 had a day, 
Night Open. I love them. They were, they never became huge, but they were in that sort of echo and the Bunny Man. I, I hate to lump them in because they're both from Liverpool, but it was that, you know, beautiful wall of noise kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we opened on a Sunday for the first ever time, and it, there's a nice big crowd in there. They're apocalyptically loud. And a cop walks in the door, through the door, and like points to me and I'm thinking oh fuck it's Sunday it's really loud you know what I mean and but then he pulls a gun out on me. he pulls a gun on me <laughs> and I'm like listen I know I know it's Sunday it's loud but it was just a one-off we're not going to be open every Sunday he's like I don't give a fuck <laughs> get outside put your hands up outside right I walk outside at gunpoint and outside there's three other cops standing in the, you know, right outside on the street and all guns out. And he's like, cut your hands. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck, what do you mean? I didn't even know what it meant, right? I remember this one cop like pulls me, like he goes, he, he sort of does, you know, does the handcuff. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, the fuck lives around here? Doesn't know how to cut their <laughs> And so they're like, you, you just robbed a house up the hill. I'm like, no, I, I run this club. And he goes, look, we've got, we got a complete description of you. You know what I mean? And look at you. It's like, it's not, we're not mistaking you for someone else you know, you're English, whatever. And um, I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're just like, I'm standing there and it's weird. I'm like, you really feel like this. They search me and everything, but this still feels a bit trigger happy. You know what I mean? They've all still got their weapons out. And then they handcuff me. And they're about to take me off. And I go, what the fuck? Tell me what's got, you know, what's the story? He goes, look, the, the homeowner saw you run down the hill into this front door of the club. And I'm like, and I, I'm just standing and I look up and I'm like, wait a fucking minute. There's a big awning here in an entryway and it's up backwards. You couldn't see in the fucking club from here. <laughs> and in that moment, like all, oh, they all look at each other and they look up and they're like, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, they, I don't, I don't even know if I had ID at that point because I probably had a passport, so I wouldn't have carried it. I doubt if I had ID even, but somehow it was ascertained that I was there and I'd been there. You know, obviously the, you know, people inside the club knew that. And so they left and um, it did turn out to be this real estate guy who lived up the hill had called it in just to fuck with me. Oh, with the club because it was noisy or something? Yeah, I never, we never really got to the bottom of it. I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, you know, but it was like, then what are we going to do? It's not like we had lawyers. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're yeah. not going to, you've got no way of pursuing it, you know, to sort of get any uh, recourse on that one. But yeah, that, that was a kind of classic cop moment at the On Club. But um, oh, Lydia lunch. Okay, so Lydia, this was this was really funny, and so Lydia lunch is. I didn't know her. I mean, I obviously knew who she was from Teenage Jesus and everything. But she showed up one night outside and said, um, "I've started this. I'm starting a new band, and they want me to play the whiskey. But I've decided I'm going to play here." I was like. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's like, yeah, it's going to be our first gig here. And I was like, okay. She goes, but um, and it has to be a Saturday night. And I'm like, well, this was pretty. This was like '81, if I remember correctly. So we, Is that we 13, 13? yeah, okay. Eight uh, Eyed Spy, I think. Oh, Eight Eyed Spy, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, you are right. Um, and so she's. I'm like, but we always do like scar and soul stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm no, I haven't heard of what she's going to do, but I know it ain't that. And, but I'm just 
look, I loved her. I love teenage years. I'm like, fuck it. We're just, let's just do it. She goes, Oh, by the way, she goes, I don't think I want an opening band. Um, I want to play white zombie. The movie. I'm like, okay. I mean, look, I was just, I was so amused by the whole idea of doing it. And I loved her so much. I just went along with it all. And the thing was, the, the thing that made the On Club successful in one sense of being able to book bands that were just cool and right was that I think there was a level of trust at that point. You know what I mean? Like when a band like The Extremes first came through that ska band from Arizona, place was packed off the back of a score in the clubs, you know, lying outside. And it was, and I think it was because people knew what they were going to get. Like they were going to hear a certain kind of music. It was going to be right. And they trusted us. So <laughs> come Saturday night, there's actually, there's like a mix of people, but at least half of it is the regular crowd, if not more. And um, I think it was the only time anyone asked for their money back, right? So this Jamaican guy walks up to me about halfway through White Zombie and goes, listen, <laughs> if I wanted to see this shit, I'd stay over and watch Channel 5 at midnight. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, you're correct. Here's your money back. You know what I mean? Sorry. Movie, movie's still done. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so funny. Um. Oh, did, you, did you ever go on on tour like with with some of the people that you were working with later or um um not much i mean not much i would when i was at a late when i was at polygram in the 90s i would fly out to see gigs with different bands especially the ones i liked um i do you know and so there were you know i would go off you know, I try and go to other cities where they, especially with newer bands, some of the English bands that I'd work with one way or another, I would try and go and see them not in New York or LA. I mean, I'd go to San Francisco a lot just to be in non-industry places. Yeah, totally. You know, where you'd see a real crowd and get a sense of what they were like. or And then try and go places where someone might not give a fuck about them. You know what I mean? And see how that was with them. Um, but not not strict not tour 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 no i i never really did i mean the the worst one was probably um somehow ed Eckstein, the president of mercury who i loved and gave my first chance to do music soundtrack and supervision so i in my career really but he, the worst thing he ever did was make us go on the road with Bon Jovi for gigs and fly in their plane. And oh, that, my God. <laughs> that was like earning your money, you know what I mean? No offense. I love, you know, I mean, you no, know. Wait, spill the beans. We need to hear this. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you just imagine it, right? Did you wear spandex, Howard? <laughs> Not even, uh, no. I mean, look, I don't bear in mind, too. Like, I grew up with glitter, you know what I mean? So I, yeah, yeah. I, I knew how it was done right, and I knew how it was done wrong. You knew, but, you knew how it was done here, metal New Jersey style. <laughs> yeah, but but no. On the flip side of that, look, I love you know it was there was a lot of rock bands in that era, and like the Def Leppard guys, I love them. We're still mates. They to me, they were a band, pure band as a band. You know what I mean? Real gang band as a band as gang, the way a lot of punk bands were. They're still tight friends stood up for each other, never fucked with each other. You know, I mean, there's, there was good bands like that. And then there was. It <laughs> <laughs> was the other side of the coin. Anyway, um, but no, I didn't. I mean, I really admire anyone who hits the road, like especially when I see bands now that, you know, we might have grown up loving and these guys are still doing it. And I'm talking about the ones who are doing it on a bus, not zipping around in private planes. I don't know how people do it, you know? Right, I know, it's a, it's, it's insane. I travel a lot still, right? Yeah, well, I mean, not in the pandemic, but yeah, but that, but no, my- As an artist, you know? Yes, my traveling for dance though, um, when I started doing that in the early, um, in the early 2000s, I was, I, you know, I'd already been on the road for years with my band and our van and, and that kind of stuff. And when, when I started doing it for dance, I was like, wow, I don't have to sleep on the floor of a punk house or in my van. I've got an actual bitchin' hotel room and um, I've got 
airline miles with tickets that the sponsors are paying for so I can sit in like business class or first class. And I was like, yeah. I, and, and I mean, in those days even, and that, that was like, you know, that was like 20 or something a little bit more years. No, like almost 30 years ago when that started, I already thought I was an old lady. And <laughs> I don't think anyone who does it after 25 has got my hat off to them. You know what I mean? What'd you say? Anyone who's touring like round the clock, you know, month in a month out, like, and doing it on a street level post to their 20s, to me, has got, I have their, you know, they got a lot of admiration from me because I don't want to be on that. I don't want to be on that. No, I know. I mean, even, even, I mean, now it's, now it's like easier though for people to tour because there's, you don't have to have like a paper mouth on your lap or, or go to pull over to like a pay phone in like the middle of like, Idaho to figure out where the fuck he was. Well, that, yeah, that's more my memory. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that is a good point. They got it easy now, <laughs> I reckon. And you can also, like, you know, you can, like, text, like, you know, your significant other or your family or your best friends or, or email them or FaceTime them. You don't have to, like, send them a postcard from the middle of nowhere um, or, or like call up the record company and ask them why they didn't ship like those 100, like eight by 10 glossies <laughs> to the club or poster, you know what I mean? Yeah. God, I love postcards from bands. It was so fun. Oh my God. I have so many from, from different people that were staying at Disgraceland that were on tour or from my roommates. Um, like, um, you know, like Mike Mart from Tux and the Horseheads or Belinda from the Go-Go's, like when they were doing early tours, those, those postcards are like just gems. We got to take a little break here for a second and then um, let's listen to some music and we'll be back with Howard in moments. are back um so tell me how we're just switching gears a little bit are you going to be doing some um like virtual or real life appearances for your book top ranking yeah i'm doing um book soup with denise hamilton a crime author and my mentor um at on june 28th at book soup now as of now it's a zoom um but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that maybe they'll decide to open up by then. But I don't, we don't know. You know, they know we, Denise and I are excited to go to the shop and do it. You know what I mean? If possible. So I hope so. so. And any, any, if it's on Zoom, anyone can watch it though. So that's good. It's great. I mean, it's funny because I remember like when right in March, when the pandemic started, Kathy Valentine was due to do book soup. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, that's so great. Like when I went did book soup for the Once Upon a Time in LA novel, that was like one of the best days ever for me. You know, as a writer, it was just so much fun. It was packed and we had a wild time. It was great. And I felt bad for her because, you know, we were all living, when she was in the text homes, right pre to go goes, we were all living down the street, not far from there. Um, so I was like, oh, it's really sad for her. Then I went on the Zoom. There were 600 people on it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's amazing, especially for people that grew up in analog days like us. I mean, like, I think younger people think it's normal. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, I think it's it that more much. normal. Yeah, plus it's, you know, look, the book, I like the book world. I don't know about you. I like, I really love meeting other authors and I feel like it's a really nice community and, you know, a very sort of self mutually supportive. I mean, it reminds me, you know, in a more, in a completely different way, but some of that spirit of like early punk days, you know, where people were just, yeah. you know, so I, I love being around other writers and authors. I'm going to do um, 
Rampart, my publisher, just got me uh, just got me invited to this one in New Orleans, um, big mystery one to do a panel there. And it's like, what is it called? Um, something like post-mortem on the bayou or something. When, <laughs> it, when is that one? Tell, tell our listeners when that August one is. 26. Okay. So we can we can maybe put a link for it in the in the oh, description. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, we're doing, a, we're doing a noir panel, noir past, present, and future. So that'll be fun. Um, but you so guys yeah, have to get Howard's books. Howard's a great writer, and um, you know, a life well lived. Quote quote. <laughs> <laughs> Back at you, pleasant. <laughs> um, is there? And anything else that comes to mind that you want to um, share with people in podcast land? No, really. I mean, look, I, I hope, you know, all I'm going to say with the book is that it's totally authentic and it's done in real time pretty much through 1980. And uh, wait, when did you write it? Did you, did you write it like during the pandemic or was it starting? I was really screwed up. Like I started writing it the late 1970, excuse me, uh, what was it, 2018, I went to Buenos Aires for a couple of weeks and did some writing there every day. Um, and when I came back in 2019, I thought, okay, I, I'm going to, I knew the two guys were doing their nonfiction scar books and it kind of made, gave me, I was going, let's all get out for next year. You know, it'll be like, 2020 it'll be sort of anniversary all this stuff let's let's go for it so i i locked down in 2019 like an idiot like i got up every day <laughs> saturday wrote eight hours cooked dinner got up sunday wrote eight hours finished it by november 2019 and then what happened was that she ended up working out well um Denise Hamilton suggested we send it to, or I send it to Rare Bird um, Books. So she introduced me to Tyson. I sent it there and they, he was like, great, we want to put it out. But all the, you know, all those publishers are like a year back. So it was never coming out in 2020 um, anyway, as it turned out, which, you know, I'm happy about in, a, in one sense because, you know, hopefully now we can do some things in person. I went back. For the first time, Alan McGee has this new thing, Creation Dream Machine, that they're doing. Which I, they set up me to go into the club for the first time since 19, and you know, whatever it was, 80s anyway, last week. So we went in and did that. And we're going to, the reason I'm mentioning it is because um, the woman who has the shop there um, in that half that space now is up for us doing some kind of book signing event or something like that there. So we're going to try and figure out something like that this summer. I mean, I'd like to do something where maybe like the box boys or untouchables pull a, you know, pull a little something together, do like a little daytime thing somewhere and have fun. Um, but that, you know, some stuff we're going to, we're going to aim to do during the summer. Oh, that'll be cool. Yeah. I can't believe it's already, um, June now this year this this year is going double fast because 2020 went so slow yeah yeah right no kidding well anything else you want to add no I mean just this has been so much fun and I love what you're up to there and it's really nice just to have a bit of time to sort of talk just like us just talking and uh, hope people kind of get a laugh out of it I can't wait to see you in real life Howard and um anyway you guys that was the amazing Howard Parr Get his books. Top ranking is really awesome. Um, your other book, um, what? <laughs> what a time in LA. That was a rock and roll noir novel. I know. I, 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 it's not like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it, it might be well, dirty. it's funny because, yeah, I was like, Quentin, like the pub, my publisher, last publisher, wanted me to call it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was like laughing when Quentin Tarantino died. I, mean, I love him so much. And it's like, his one's the sort of love letter to the film industry. Mine's a noir kind of love letter to the music business in a way. So they're kind of, it's kind of perfect. Now he's putting his out as a book. So I don't know, maybe I should make a film. I don't know. Yeah, you should make a film for sure. <laughs> it can be all black and white, like two-tone records now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, oh, I will say this, the audio books, we've, we've got an audio book done on Once Upon a Time in LA with some really cool 
uh, actors, uh, actress on it. I narrate it. That we're going to get that out later this year. And the, the there is an audio book for Top Ranking that this guy Sean Grindel narrated. He did a really good job. I was kind of like, oh no, you know what I mean? You, but he, we talked before he did. He did it. He's an English guy. He did a really good job. So I love the audio version of the book. And I'll just say, leaving it at that, there's a Spotify soundtrack with every sequential song on it of Top Ranking, so anyone can hear that. Oh yeah, we'll put that we'll put that up um, so everyone can hear can hear your awesome set of music. That'll be great because Howard's got good taste. Anyway, Howard, that was wonderful. You guys, that was Howard Parr. You can see how amazing he is. Read his books. Um, read them and weep because you weren't alive in those days. No. <laughs> Try to go to his book signings and um, his new book, um, Top Ranking, is available. Um, I'm sure, quote, quote, everywhere fine books are sold. And, um, <laughs> and maybe also where some shifty adult books are sold. Who knows? No. <laughs> All, right. All right. It was so good to talk to you, Howard. Pleasant genius. Thanks for having me. Mwah. Okay. That, we are the Devil's Music signing off. Oh. The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. That symphony of engines roaring in perfect harmony. It's a feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, Jerry. Oh, my word. Really, really terrible. Was that a glockenspiel, Jerry? Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Uh, no, no, Jerry. It's over. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.